Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion and review of British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the latest developments in the EU referendum and how the Conservative Party is attempting to hold itself together, plus the current state of the Scottish economy and how the SNP is prepping itself for May's elections in Hollywood. I'm delighted to be joined by an assortment of the FT's finest minds, George Parker, our political editor, political correspondent Kate Allen, economics editor Chris Giles, and our energy editor Kieran Stacey. Thank you all for joining. So, we'll kick off our episode by returning to the EU referendum. We'll be here once or twice before July, and looking at the manoeuvres by David Cameron this week in particular. Earlier in the week, he sent a letter to his cabinet colleagues telling what Eurosceptic ministers can and can't say during the campaign. Chris Grayling, the leader of the House of Commons, then put these rules to the test by publicly making the case for Britain to leave the EU. And then finally, George Osborne outlined the idea of having a second referendum and said it was rubbish and then conceded the Treasury isn't making any preparations for Brexit. So George Parker, I'll begin with you. What's the most significant thing that's happened in the referendum this week and does any of it actually matter? Well, I think it does matter because what we're seeing really is David Cameron is looking beyond his EU renegotiation, which he now expects to conclude on February the 18th at a summit in Brussels. Things look like they're working out pretty well. Lots of favourable noises coming out of Brussels. So he's looking beyond that and onto the referendum campaign itself and to the question about how he manages the inevitable split in the Conservative Party during the referendum campaign as the party splits down the middle on whether to campaign for an in or out vote. And the most significant thing I think that happened this week was him setting out the ground rules, rules of engagement by which Eurosceptic ministers will be able to campaign for a Brexit without bringing the whole house down as a a, a consequence and how you put the party back together again at the end of that process. And he sent a letter out to all ministers setting up basically their code of conduct for for the time of the uh, referendum campaign. So Kate Allen, I think one thing that's very key this week has been that the terms of the referendum, you know, we're not really been talking about what David Cameron's going to bring back. People aren't very hopeful for his renegotiation. But the idea is, is this a level playing field between the in and the out campaign? Well, the Eurosceptic backbenchers are surprisingly fairly uh, buoyant about the way that the decisions influencing the referendum itself have been taken so far. There have been a whole series of quite technical decisions that most people probably don't know very much about, such as PERDA for civil servants, how they're expected to behave during the campaign, the wording of the exact question, the date on which the vote will be held and the fact that there won't be any other elections happening on the same day, and the fact that the Conservative Party won't allow its resources to be used by either side. Now, Eurosceptics feel that all of these decisions have gone in their favour. So they were feeling fairly sanguine about the Prime Minister's letter this week. I think then what was most interesting, George, was that Chris Grayling, who is considered to be one of the key Eurosceptics in the Cabinet and is someone who would be very likely to resign if the Prime Minister hadn't allowed for a free vote, then made the case in an article in the Daily Telegraph where he said, you know, 
we respect what you're doing, Prime Minister, very important renegotiation, but I fundamentally feel this is not the case. You know, could Chris Grayling become the man who leads the out campaign? Well, there was an interesting discussion behind closed doors between Chris Grayling and David Cameron at the start of the previous week, where they basically had a discussion and Chris Grayling made it clear he wanted to campaign to leave and he wanted to be first out of the traps. He wants to be associated with the guy who led the Tories in the out campaign. And David Cameron said to him, you can do this, but you've got to do it on civil terms. You've got to be respectful to the other side. And you've also got to be supportive of the renegotiation on going through. And it was interesting, the article that Chris Grayling wrote in the Daily Telegraph, on one level, it was very Eurosceptic. He said it was a disaster for Britain to stay in the EU as it's currently configured. But he showed the article to David Cameron first. The wording of the article was carefully agreed. It was very supportive of David Cameron and the negotiation he's carrying out. And some Eurosceptics actually read it and thought, hang on a sec, is Chris Grayling even possibly leaving open the possibility he's going to campaign to stay in if David Cameron does all the things he said in the article? Now, I think that's a bit of a taking it one step too far. But the fact is, it was a controlled explosion, if you like. And it's part of this whole thing of David Cameron trying to make sure that there will be arguments, but at the end of it, you can put the party back together again. I suppose this is going back to the 90s when you had the Maastricht rebels and all the bad feeling in John Major's government. And David Cameron's really trying to avoid that. But there are some Tories who just love Europe. They've been waiting decades for this referendum. You know, do you think there's going to be some bloodletting, though, George? Yeah, I do. I don't think this sort of phony war atmosphere and cordiality is going to last because... As you say, I mean, David Cameron lived through the 90s. He was a special advisor in in the government back then when the Tory party fell apart over Maastricht in the mid-90s. And the fact is, for many Tories, as you were just saying there, this transcends party interest. This is a matter of national sovereignty, national self-determination. They feel extremely strongly about it. And as I've said before, you know, David Cameron may enter this process with the best of intentions, hoping the party will hold together, but they will have to listen, the Eurosceptics, to David Cameron for four months making the case for Britain staying in the European Union, saying how great the European Union is, how vital it is for the economy, how vital it is for our national security, how brilliant this deal was that he did in Brussels in February. And the Eurosceptics will hear that and it will sound really, really toxic to them. And that's why I think it's going to be difficult to keep the party mood uh, in, in the place that he wants it to be. So Kate, what's your sense this week of the mood in the Conservative Party? You know, you said people were quite happy about the Prime Minister's letter, but we also learned this week that the Treasury isn't making any preparations for potential Brexit at the moment. And this all feeds in to the idea that despite the renegotiation, it's already been decided David Cameron's going to campaign for in, George Osborne's going to campaign for in, and the official government decision is going to be for in. You know, there must be a lot of very annoyed Tory MPs about this. Well, as I say, I think a lot of the kind of hardcore Eurosceptics are fairly sanguine broadly because they feel that strategically they've won the important battles fairly under the radar so far. So they're pretty they're pretty chilled. I think they think the next big thing to do is to get some big figureheads, you know, big names out there arguing for Brexit. And also they know that there's a large number of the Tory party at Westminster who are waiting for this renegotiation to happen before they make their mind up officially, before they come out and say what they think. So there's a large proportion of the Tory party at Westminster still to be won over. And those are the people who are really going to make the decision and really kind of swing the party one way or the other in the next few months. But when you look at the big names, who are those big names? Reading reports this week, everyone was looking at Boris. You know, he was the one lots of people thought could lead the out campaign. But all the indications say Boris is maybe not so keen on leading the out campaign. 
I think that uh, one of the things that perhaps people don't appreciate is that big name politicians are just as worried about everybody else about being seen to pick the right side, pick the winning side. It's as important for the future Tory leadership contenders to make sure they're on the right side of the British people, the right side of this vote. Nobody wants to go into a Tory leadership election having picked the wrong side and being called a loser. One of the things about Boris that makes him so popular among the Conservative Party is people see him as being a winner. He's won London twice. They think he's uh, very popular in the country, obviously. And people think that whichever side Boris goes with, that's going to be a, you know, a great boost for them. And arguably, he's waiting to see which side the polls look like they're moving. He doesn't want to be seen to be going against the general population either. George, just going back to that general bloodletting thing, we've also had something quite intriguing this week from the FT, which is looking at the boundary review, because we've got the big shake-up of all the constituencies in the country at the moment. And the big question is, some seats are going to get chopped, some Tories are going to lose their seats. What's the relationship going to be like? Because if you've got a Eurosceptic Conservative Association, but a Tory MP who fouls behind the government, isn't that going to make relations quite difficult and potentially lead to some MPs losing their seat, deselection, all the things we say about Labour. Yeah, well, the boundary review, the idea of cutting the number of seats from 650 to 600 is a big factor. And I think you're right, it's going to play into the European debate. In fact, David Cameron was warned by Graham Brady, the chairman of the Backbench 1922 Committee, to drop this boundary review because he knew it was going to cause problems in this parliament. And as you say, if you cut 50 seats, everyone's going to be scrambling around. Consistently, boundaries will change. And most Conservative associations are Eurosceptic and they will be looking around to see whether their MP was actually sufficiently Eurosceptic during the referendum campaign. You know, the running joke is it's not actually a joke. When you're a potential Tory candidate and you go to a selection meeting, they say, which European treaty do you think should be repealed? And the only correct answer, as we all know, is the Treaty of Rome, the founding treaty of the European Union. So the people in the country are really, really Eurosceptic. And I think the boundary review hanging over the Tory party is a real problem. We've also got this policy of no Tory, no colleague left behind, Kate. And the idea for that is to say that David Cameron is saying to his party, look, stick with me through the boundary review. Even though seats are going to get chopped, there's going to be some MPs retiring. And I'll make sure that you stay on side and you've got colleague there. But that could still lead to some bloodletting, couldn't it? Absolutely. Well, this causes a great problem for the Tory grassroots. A lot of the Tories' biggest activists in the country are people who are on the candidates list who want to be selected as an MP but haven't yet. Now backbenchers warn that through this policy of no Tory left behind that's all well and good but that means that these MPs who are being displaced to other constituencies will effectively knock candidates out of the way meaning that in 2020 you've got very little chance of getting selected as a new candidate for a Tory constituency whatsoever which means potentially they are disempowering and kind of unenthusing an entire swathe of their most uh, committed activists. Now on to Scotland. Falling oil prices have been hitting Scotland's economy, casting further doubt on those figures from the SNP of oil revenues that would prop up an independent Scotland. But even with Scotland remaining in the union, the economy's been looking a little bit dicey. Kieran Stacey, we've got a piece in the FT this week looking at oil and Scotland. Just how bad is the Scottish economy doing at the moment? Yeah, not very well at all. We're starting to see it with GDP figures. Uh, Q3, the entire UK grew at about 0.4%. Scotland, it was 0.1%. The previous quarter, the divergence was even bigger. It was 0.7% in the UK, 0.1% growth in Scotland. 
This doesn't even include direct revenues from oil. So if you were to divide up oil production on a geographical basis, that gap would be even wider. I've spent quite a lot of time in Aberdeen recently, and they're really starting to feel it there. This has been a boom town for the last decade or two. Uh, the housing market in Aberdeen was going absolutely great guns. There were enormous Porsche and Audi garages popping up all over the place. They're all starting to close down. Offices are now going empty. Um, the whole ripple effect is taking place. And I think you'll start to see that more across the rest of Scotland because, of course, it's not just the oil industry itself. It's all the services that depend on that, you know, the bars and the hotels and the taxi drivers and all the rest of that dependent economy. So it's really starting to hurt, certainly the north of Scotland, and we're starting to see that now in the rest of the country as well. This is obviously something the SNP can't, this is not their fault, but they're still on course to win a landslide victory in the elections coming up this May. Um, When it starts to bite, do you think they'll take any of the blame or any political hit for it? Well, they don't seem to have done so, so far. Oil today, as I speak, is under $30 a barrel. At the time of the referendum, the uh, Scottish National Party was saying they predicted it would go to $120 a barrel. And yet, in that time, the SNP support has gone up. Now, in a way, that Scottish voter is saying, hey, it's not the SNP's fault that the oil price is crashing. But what it does demonstrate is that the SNP's best case for independence is not actually economic. And I think that this, if nothing else, should tell them that. Really, their best case is political. That What they should say is, hey, look, we should go independent because the politics of Scotland have become so divergent from the rest of the UK. We keep getting governments that we don't elect. Uh, the democratic body of Scottish voters are now completely separate from those of the rest of the UK. They have different priorities and we need a government that reflects that. And if if that means that our GDP suffers for a little bit while we you know, establish ourselves as a, a, a modern Western economy separate from the United Kingdom, so be it. Well, they've got to stop pretending is that they can go independent and that it would have no effect on the economy at all. It clearly would. Well, Chris Giles, these figures were routinely rubbished um, by economists, I'm sure folks like yourself, during the independence referendum. But the SNP never seemed to get any blame for this. You know, if we hit another independence referendum, is there any way the SNP can defend these sort of ludicrous $130 per barrel of oil figures? No, there's no way they can defend them. I mean, if you look at the figures they were putting out just before the referendum, when you look at the revenues they expect, they said that in the worst case scenario, they'd get 3.2 billion pounds a year oil revenues in the best case about 8 billion the office for budget responsibility now says it'll be 0.1 billion quite likely to go negative with the latest uh, extra decline in oil prices because this 0.1 billion was predicated on oil prices at 58 dollars a barrel they're now under 30 and remember there are lots of reasons in the tax system you actually have to pay out if companies invest or they have other tax um, rebates coming through so it's quite likely that the North Sea will cost the UK taxpayer in future. So there is no way the SNP can do that at the moment with oil prices as they are. And so they will need to have some other economic and political argument were they to want to have another independence referendum. Well, obviously, we know that um, Scotland remained in the Union for the moment and the Scotland Bill is currently making its way through um, the Commons. And the aim of the Scotland Bill is to devolve new powers and new spending to Holyrood, which is obviously going to be in the SNP's control. But we've seen this week, haven't we, Chris, that um, Nicola Sturgeon said she won't sign this bill. and It's all to do with Scotland's population. Can you explain that? Yes, I can. The the, the way devolution to Scotland works on a financial basis essentially means that they were go- are going to be given 
a portion of income tax revenue and then in future more of other taxes as well, but not North Sea oil. That's, that's left separately. And then if they can increase their tax base, if they can become richer in Scotland or they have more people paying taxes, they keep that extra money or at least a share of that extra money. And the whole idea is that if there are UK-wide risks, the UK taxpayer uh, bears a burden. But if there's specific Scotland risks or opportunities, if Scotland does better or worse than the rest of the UK, Scotland bears risk. This was in the Smith Commission. This was the way it was decided to be. And at the moment, Scotland's saying, yeah, that's all very well. But because actually we might have a smaller population than the rest of the UK, growth-wise, so we're going to have fewer people working, actually, it looks as if we're going to do quite badly on this. And uh, we don't like this anymore. And so they're actually arguing against the devolution that they called for. If they had a Devo Max, which was their sort of second preference compared with the independence, all of this would happen as well. So it's quite an odd uh, political gambit by Nicola Sturgeon. And yet it is quite something that they will always do. They're always looking for the best deal they can possibly get. Because, Kieran, this all comes from the vow, doesn't it? Which was the front page of the Daily Record just before the independence referendum in 2014. And this was um, politicians from London promising more powers to Scotland. So after that, no vote. We then had the Smith Commission, which looked into giving these extra powers. And out of the Smith Commission, we had the Scotland Bill, which has been working through Parliament, giving these extra powers that the SNP wanted. So the optics of them not signing this bill are a little odd, considering they want more powers. And now they're saying because the details, as Chris just outlined, aren't quite in their favour, they don't want these powers. And again, what does this mean for May's elections, do you think? Probably relatively little for May's elections. I think anybody who's been up and tested the water politically in Scotland over the last six months to a year will realise that the SNP is on an unstoppable roll, at least in the short term. These kind of details that we fuss over and pour over, they're really interesting and they're important, but they don't really knock the central thrust of the SNP's message, which is that we are the party of Scotland. We understand you better than any of those distant, remote Westminster parties do. So for that reason, I would expect the SNP will roll on towards their eventual landslide Holyrood victory, which people are mainly predicting they will do. In the long term, of course, all of this might just take the shine off the independence cause, certainly for those centrist voters who might have thought, well, maybe it's not as risky as I thought. Right now, they're seeing things like the delaying over the Scotland bill, the crashing oil revenues, and they might just think, yeah, this this all looks a bit riskier than we realised. So if anything, it puts any second independence referendum further into the future. But having said that, I think Nicola Sturgeon is a naturally cautious politician anyway. And as long as she was in charge, it was always likely to be after 2020 rather than any time in the next five years. Because, Chris, when you look at Scotland, the simple fact is that the SNP aren't that good at governing. That, um, you know, as, as Kieran said, they've got this huge well of support because they're nationalists and they believe in Scotland and like these traitors. But the simple fact is that they're not very good at running Scotland. The Scottish economy is not doing that well. Well, the simple fact you're sort of right is that, is that outcomes are not that good. So Scotland is about as rich as the rest of the UK. So it's better than the north of England, worse than the south and London in terms of prosperity. Over time, it's grown in recent years at a similar rate to the UK. But lots of other public sector outcomes, health, education, have tended to be worse, even though they've had more money spent on them. So in that sense, I think you're entirely right. Something hasn't gone very well in Scottish public policy. And the SNP have been running the show for quite a long time now. They can't always blame it on Westminster or the previous lot. And then I suppose finally, Kieran, the question is, in, in this sense... 
when are they going to come a cropper? Because this is the thing we've been watching for so long, you know, and obviously you're covering the energy beat now. You used to be political correspondent for the FT, so I'm sure you've seen your fair share of the SNP. But the simple fact is they seem quite unbeatable and that they've gone to do very well in Holyrood. And it's hard to see, particularly with the EU referendum, if we don't have a second referendum and the SNP takes Scotland independent. Well, if the SNP were to take Scotland independent... That's when they would come a cropper because that's when the stuff that we're talking about starts to bite and there is nobody else to blame. Uh, that's when the economy might start to stumble and voters you know, can't turn around and say, well, it's all, all the fault of the nasty Westminster parties. As long as independence is a relatively distant prospect, which I think it is at the moment, partially because I don't think there will be an outvote at an EU referendum then the SNP can keep playing the clever political game that they're playing at the moment, which is whenever things go right, they take the credit. And whenever things go wrong, they pass the blame. You're right. It might be that voters turn around and say, eventually, look, things are not going as well as they should. But the things that tend to do for a dominant political party are really big events like recessions. And if we were to have another major economic dip. I wonder whether the SNP would avoid the blame altogether, because if it's something that affects the whole of the UK, people will start looking towards the Tories as the people to blame. That's certainly what Labour found. It wasn't until we had a major recession that actually the shine finally came off Labour a few years ago. And I wonder if the same is is true of the SNP. Really, the shine won't properly come off until and if Scotland goes independent. I'm actually just going to throw one more quick last question to Chris there, that in that venture case, if Scotland does go independent, what do you think would happen to its economy? Well, in the short term, they'd have a big, they'd have to have a big budgetary contraction because they run a much larger fiscal deficit than the UK as a whole, because they spend more per person than uh, other parts of the UK, and. At the moment, when their economy is growing slowly and interest rates are extremely low, even if they had their own independent currency, I think that would be very difficult for them. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday morning with another episode of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.